our 12th night rule took place during the aftermath of a pretty crazy day. Um, I was very pleased to be able to talk with uh, Professor Adnan Hussein of Queen's University um, about yesterday's events and uh, a few other topics. Today's intro and outro will be from Takanaka Masayoshi from his album, The White Goblin. And we'll be listening to a track called Heaven and Earth. So uh, without any further delay, this is Night Rule. Welcome all. Episode 12 of Night Rule. We're very pleased to be joined again by uh, Professor Adnan Hussein of Queen's University on, um, can't really call it a slow news day. You know, there's some uh, some very troubling things out there uh, in the media where we're just getting information trickling in. Um, I did want to read one quote that I thought was particularly troubling. Um, he showed up late and left early. He wouldn't appear in any of their Instagram shots. All he did was bring over the hologram of her father, Robert Kardashian, then got out there as fast as he could, the source added. I'm of course referring to uh, the Kanye West-Kim Kardashian split, um, shaking the very foundations of our society. Uh, I don't know if there was any other big news yesterday. Um, was there, is there, are there any stories you're following besides this? That's pretty much what I've been wrapped up with too, um, but... Uh... My wife told me that there was some kind of assault on the U.S. Capitol building. I said, ah, you know. Oh, that's right. And uh, moved on. But yes. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't even know what to say. It's uh, just like such a shocking thing to see um, on your screen. Um, it seems pretty, I mean, you know, certainly unprecedented in our lifetimes and uh, pretty disturbing on, on multiple levels. Uh, like, what's your what's your what's your initial reaction here? Well, I mean, on the one hand, I do think this is uh, remarkable, unprecedented, disturbing, and also at the same time, there were elements of it that were so carnivalesque, so uh, oddly theatrical, cartoonish. Um, 
that, you know, I felt conflicted at times whether I should be completely outraged and think this is the end of U.S. Uh, democracy or if I should, you know, really look at this as a really buffoonish um, dress rehearsal for something that could be a lot more serious uh, in the future. And it brought to mind Marx's dictum in the 18th Brumaire, where he says rather famously that history always repeats itself the first time as tragedy and the second time as farce. And I thought, mm. well, this is a case where these are really reversed potentially, where this may be a farcical um, uh, insurrection, a faux insurrection, um, but it could be a dress rehearsal for a much more serious and tragic um, uh, disruption of, uh, you know, the transfer of power in the future or the rise and emergence of some kind of more formal and aggressive and obvious neo-fascist regime in the United States under someone with greater competence who also has the confidence of the surveillance and security apparatus and state. I mean, I think that's something that Trump really lacks. He's been, in fact, at war in some ways. Uh, maybe it's been a, a fake sort of war, but, it, you know, he, he has uh, railed against CIA, FBI, and his cadres really do talk about the deep state and, and so on as um, never accepting him and, and so on. And the military, it's not clear whether they would obey his orders in these kinds of circumstances and so forth. But what if you had somebody like a Tom Cotton um, who could bridge the gap between those institutions of power and this um, far-right populism in some, in some ways? Then we could really see a serious uh, coup um, so it seemed that this was a farce that could lead to or test the boundaries of future tragedy. It really reminded me in some ways of um, the Beer Hall Putsch in, in, in Germany, right? in Munich. Um, the Putsch that like was a failed attempt because there were, you know, the Nazi party really didn't have it together, wasn't organized. It had grandiose ideas of trying to seize power in Bavaria and so on. And it really set them back for a period. People were rounded up. It was a miserable failure. But out of the seeds of that, um, it inspired uh, more support as, as the outrage continued. As long as the conditions that are feeding uh, the ability of Trump to communicate to a base um, that is dislocated and upset, whether the grievances are the end of white supremacy or the challenge of um, a multiracial society, um, or on the one hand, or whether it is, you know, economic uh, kinds of grievances of neoliberalism. If those factors are not, not changed, then there are going to be opportunities for further cycles of this sort of um, uh, derogation of, of, of democratic uh, government. You know, liberal democracy doesn't have that long of a history compared with forms of monarchical or other authoritarian forms in, in history. And you could argue in some ways that the United States wasn't a real democracy 
um, until the 60s, um, when uh, a kind of apartheid system was formally ended. And it hasn't been that long, you know, and we're seeing the resurgence of forces that are undermining democracy. So I had a lot of complex kind of thoughts and feelings about it, conflicted in, in, in some ways. Um, so that, that's kind of where I stood at the end of the evening. Sure. Yeah, I think I think that's a very uh, that's a very strong perspective. I think I think there's a lot of it's it's totally natural to be conflicted because it's a it's a complex thing that's happening. Um, and I think, I mean, even just like uh, maybe doing a little bit of a media critique, I think if you look at the reaction on the mainstream uh, side, uh, the the two mainstream sides, I'll just say CNN and Fox News, for example. You know, CNN mm. basically was 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 just using the starkest possible terms to say this was an assault on democracy. Um, these are thugs, these are uh, anarchists, these are rioters. They, they all need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Really, really painting <clears throat> a pretty like strong picture of, you know, barbarians at the gate, so to speak. And then, but you look at Fox and they really, I, I mean, there was, there's been some, a lot of criticism of them, but I think for their main viewers, they they did a pretty good job of spinning, spinning the story. I mean, the spin coming from Fox, if you watch Tucker Carlson, he's basically saying in a lot of ways, he's touching on some of the same things you're saying, which is, you know, we need to look at the underlying causes of this and address those. And if we don't, then we're in trouble. But of course, he's, he, he was also able to maneuver that um, into uh, basically deflecting any criticism from the people doing this and any criticism from people like himself for encouraging it. Um, and I'm worried that the right wing and, and even included in that you have, you know, 40 to 50% of right wingers online basically saying, oh, it was anti, it was Antifa that was disguised as protesters and they're the ones responsible for all the destruction. I mean, um, the disinformation machine is really um, running at a pretty high pace as well. So I think, I think we need to kind of push through both of those narratives and find some nuanced understanding of this because it's a, uh, Otherwise, we really fail. We're, we're, we're going to lose the opportunity to learn any lessons here. Yeah, that's my concern. I think you're right on with some of the real issues. My concern is what lessons will we learn? And by we, I mean, I actually should say, you know, will Democratic Party leadership, Republican Party leadership, uh, the wider public, the media, the, it's very disturbing, um, this identification, even among the news media, not even the commentators, uh, but just the news media discussing and reporting it, talking about anarchistic um, rather than fascistic, right? It seems like that word fascism is not allowed to be used in a serious, historically precise manner in you know the public airwaves. Um, so instead, they're talking about just the sense of chaos and anarchy. And of course, that leads people to think of left wing kinds of uh, movements and disturbance that uh, and protest um, that can be quite easily um, identified with Antifa and and, um, you know, used to avoid taking any kind of serious responsibility. That is quite disturbing, the way in which that narrative is already bizarrely being shaped. And But I also am worried that, for example, the Democratic uh, leadership, the corporate or centrist um, Democrats, 
will not effectively tie the entire Republican Party and its policies and the sort of political culture that it has sustained, not just for four years, though it has aided and abetted directly in the last four years under the Trump administration, but even farther going back to the Tea Party, uh, even all the way back to the contract with America under Newt Gingrich, this politics of white resentment and grievance that has sustained um, more and more radical sorts of options. And I feel like what is going to happen is going to be two things. One, the restoration of the so-called moderate Republicans who are not moderate by any means. We're talking still about far-right figures, people like you know Tom Cotton, Mitch McConnell, these, these sorts of figures that are more the establishment corporate Republicans um, are going to be rehabilitated. Uh, We're going to be told by Biden under the era of bipartisanship how we have to just move beyond uh, and that we can work with responsible figures um, in the Republican Party and we're gonna let them off the hook. And then the second real concern and fear that I have is that the discourse Uh, that I'm hearing about is the failures of the Capitol Police and how we didn't have enough security. If they had wanted to stop these people, they clearly could have stopped them. It's not really a question of inadequate security. It's the fact that the security apparatus, the police, are essentially in some ways sympathetic to and aligned with. Now, maybe some elements are not, and that's why there's been this kind of conflict between Trump and I mean, certain, certainly some elements, but I think, you know, 70 percent, I think, in most polls within the police forces are, are Republican right. and Trump supporters. So, I mean, we need to understand, like, of course, there are police that are horrified by what they saw yesterday. Yes. But but there's no question that a large proportion, in fact, a, you know, strong majority are, you know, politically aligned. That's right. And, and I think, you know, the, the concern here would be that one of the main responses will be simply that we need to beef up policing or beef up surveillance because one of the questions is why wasn't this anticipated? Obviously, uh, Trump was fairly clear about calling this group together, but um, far-right groups, extremist groups, uh, have been identified by the FBI as a major domestic uh, threat, a form of, of domestic terrorism. And surely these groups that are all uh, organizing themselves on Facebook and other social media platforms indicated something of their intentions uh, or at least of the angry radical nature that was easy for Trump to activate. Um, So the question is going to be, well, you know, why wasn't this anticipated and we need to boost the monitoring and the surveillance and so on and we after know. after 20 years post 9 11 of just like the the security apparatus being expanded to cartoonish levels i mean exactly and so now this is going to is this going to be an occasion to ramp that up even further we know that of course what is it historically typically been used for is to suppress dissent from the left um you know Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, vulnerable populations, and of course the infiltration, surveillance, and disruption of left-wing um, responses to the oppressive circumstances. So, I would worry about authorizing that uh, kind of sentiment. Um, if anything, what we've been witnessing over the summer, 
was a massive popular response against the police, carceral, and military establishments. Um, the last thing we want to do is to notice the hypocrisy of how these people were uh, treated um, in their assault on the Capitol with you know, respect and sometimes selfies being taken with cops uh, and gently being uh, removed or encouraged to leave um, you know, the precincts and so on. The last thing we want to do is to argue that those people should have been uh, as brutally treated as Black Lives Matter protesters and Black and Brown people. The thing we want to say instead is we'd much rather that you treat everybody, including Black, Brown, um, immigrant, and so on, in the same manner that these police treated those white protesters uh, yesterday. Absolutely. And I want to talk more about the kind of um, the racial aspects of this story. But um, uh, I, th I do think that's a huge, there's a huge component um, of that. I mean, I think, I think there's, there's, you know, there's the, what we already touched on, the, the police kind of being politically aligned. Um, Matt Crispin of Chapel Trap House had an interesting thought um, where he said that um, the, one of the main reasons they were allowed to run roughshod over the, the, you know, the halls of power was that they weren't really advocating for anything. They're, they're mm -hmm. fans of a game show host who are, who are completely devoted to just this cult of personality. And if they were actually asking for anything that would materially challenge um, the established power, that they never would have been allowed to scale the walls. Now, I wonder. I wonder if you feel that was a large component in this, um, and if and if that, uh, like, if that's something we need to be considering as well. Like when we compare their response to um, to like say any protest that would actually that would actually be seeking some kind of material change. Well, that's an interesting issue. I mean, obviously, they did have one demand, which was that Trump should be restored in his presidency. Now, how and that the goal of disrupting the, the Electoral College counts. That's right. Yeah, successfully. That's right. Yeah. Disrupting that process in Congress to ratify the Electoral College uh, outcome and disrupt it um, because they believe the election was stolen. So they want to stop the steal. But in some ways, that isn't even a political demand because um, Despite all of the discussion and discourse, it's clear that the Republican Party is not behind in, in substance. It's the majority of the Republican Party, um, or at least the elected officials um, of it, um, are not really behind um, you know, supporting Trump and trying to subvert the uh, Electoral College outcome. So. And even Trump, I mean, he's been whipping up uh, these complaints, uh, grievances, making these claims and allegations, but he sort of let it just be a legal question up to this, this point. So I don't see that there is an obviously political demand um, being really forwarded. Um, so we have to kind of think, well, what, what was this about? What is it? Uh, about. Um, and I do think there is something about pushing the boundaries. We do have something like us, the society of the spectacle. Um, when this uh, situationist uh, idea mm. of politics was forwarded by uh, Guy Debord in sure. like late 60s. Well, how, how many people, in, as they stormed the building, had their phones out recording video to show yeah, people later? That's right. It was all watching one another. 
It was a self-conscious spectacle that they wanted to participate in. It was a kind of um, fascist, neo-fascist sort of street theater, street festival. It was the place to be. And they've made all these memories and forged all of these uh, uh, experiences and friendships. And it's like a, a Nazi palooza, as um, <laughs> a, a friend of ours, Kathleen Ash, tweeted. Uh, yeah, tweeted that, it, and, it, and it seemed like it was this kind of national festival to come and have a good time in some ways. Um, uh, celebrating the politics of, of grievance. And um, the real question is just whether this can be translated into something a little more inimical and nefarious and uh, effective in the future. Uh, you know, what is being shaped in terms of a kind of culture um, that has tested these boundaries, these norms, um, the law, um, you know, that might be available uh, for future, uh, you know, for future experimentation uh, in a more serious vein. I think, I think that's kind of how I would characterize what it meant uh, on, some, on some level. I think it's a really important question. I mean, the, uh, the right-wing kind of political coalition is uh, obviously going, <laughs> going through a pretty, pretty horrible time when you look at the elements that are being, some of the elements that are being encouraged and included. I mean, there's always been... Um, uh, like a, uh, I mean, to be honest, any any Republican in the United States who's been in that uh, party for a long time knows deep down that they they're in some sense or another in a coalition with uh, people with racist racist views and um, all kinds of bigotry. But it's kind of been it's usually unspoken. It's been really given a mic a uh, megaphone um, the last few political cycles. But I still wonder if there is you know say 10, 15, 20 percent of that group that uh, not uh, of the Republican coalition at large that can be chipped away because they, you know, finally realize they need to do something to further human decency. I mean, how many people there yesterday were wanted to be wanted $2,000 stimulus checks, which, you know, who's and who's been fighting for that the hardest in the Senate, Bernie Sanders, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, if they're if they're gullible enough to believe the kind of shit they're reading online. Yeah, I mean, maybe they're gullible. <laughs> maybe they would actually be amenable to. I mean, I just don't think we can write everybody off. I think even even well, if we can only get to. a handful, you know, the 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 act of writing this group off is only going to hurt us. Well, I think we can't afford to write them off because I think the main lesson uh, out of this has to be what I started with: that if the conditions don't change, you know, you have ripe uh, a ripe environment for this sort of exploitation of people's outrage, emotion. Um, all of the fears and anxieties that are being whipped up and it's easily manipulable in this in this manner. I guess what I'm worried a little bit about when you say, well, look, if they would believe a lot of the right wing, you know, conspiracy theories, the QAnon and so on, um, maybe they they, you know, they could they could be redirected. One of the issues is I think people are searching for some form of community. Um, some kind of connection with others that seems meaningful. Um, and um, especially in this pandemic, I think people are suffering uh, isolation. Absolutely. And that's why in some ways the power of the anti-maskers, the anti-vaxxers, the people who think that this COVID conspiracy has gotten out of hand and so on, is a kind of communitarian sort of uh, 
refusal to live the so isolated because they can't afford to and because it's not satisfying and so there's an emotional outlet in these kinds of forums and in this ideology that is doing some work and when i mentioned about the culture that's being created that's going to be hard to pierce because you if you inhabit a kind of culture um, it's very easy to find um sources of personal uh i'm not sure how to put it but you know satisfaction or dignity or valorization and uh, connection with others through your performance within this community that reinforces itself so it can be maybe very hard to redirect it the only way it seems to me that you could have a chance at puncturing uh, and you know these almost impermeable cultural boundaries that seem to have emerged in partisan divided uh, America is with an economic populist, uh, uh, you know, with some economic populist success. Uh, but of course, there's so many incredible forces arrayed against that um, that you know the chances of that are 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 of course low but it seems to me that that's the big lesson to take from this if that only the democrats would recognize and understand that there is a potential wave um you know if we think the trump that this is not over obviously like you know the fact that trump is defeated what was proved by this it seems to me is that trump is not going away and trumpism is not going away it will be a continuing problem and that it's very possible that a whirlwind, you know, could be, uh, uh, you know, at, at, at hand in 2022, 2024. And the only way to stave that off is actually to show positive gains um, for changing the material circumstances of people and beginning to drain, you know, some of the anxieties, um, and grievances not at the cultural level you can't do much about that um but at least at the economic and and social social level and if they don't you know find a way to begin um enacting an agenda that shows progress in those spheres you know i think um much worse is yet to come I mean, I'm really hoping we can get through the next couple of weeks here. And and especially now, I mean, obviously, we would all be focused on the Georgia Senate win. So, I mean, when mm -hmm. Biden actually comes into office, we're going to have, uh, you know, control of all three branches. And the work should become how do we exert maximum pressure and, and leverage on that administration to get the maximum possible benefit, the most possible help to the people who need it the most, you know, and I think that's how that that's really going to be the struggle. Uh, coming up here once we get through this this really dark time right now that that uh, you're right that is going to be the struggle it's the kind of thing i think everybody on the left has been thinking maybe not always in the most productive ways i think there have been a lot of fragmentation and internecine internal conflicts uh that weren't productive over the last uh few months and the last few weeks uh for example the force the vote medicare for all question that could have been and should have been really an opportunity to start thinking through how we will be able to pressure the Biden administration and set an agenda for progressive changes for the next, say, 100 days. What is the agenda? 
and try and start coordinating on that. We're going to need to um, pick up the pace and not lose or miss opportunities to leverage some power uh, the way we have. We've seen that there haven't been very effective pressuring on the cabinet choices. There wasn't much leverage exercised on Pelosi's speakership. And so the question is, is, you know, how much time do we have really um, to begin figuring out some effective means of altering the direction or trajectory of the Biden administration? That's going to be a real question, a real uh, problem, I think that I don't think anybody has any really great answers for because in large part, the left is really fairly weak. Um, and we're gonna need to figure out ways um, that we can enhance that power. Uh, my personal feeling is that the long-term project, even short-term project, has to be um, working maybe less at the national level. Uh, we have to work at that level, but don't expect a lot of success there. I think, you know, in local communities, municipalities, county, state levels, there's really very little bit of a base. There's not a deep bench. And um, we should take uh, a page perhaps out of uh, the successes of the Republican Party and the right wing that they, they really did focus um, during a period where they didn't have that much success um, nationally. They did focus on building power and building political experience and 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 strength um, at other levels of of governance. Oh, absolutely. And I think I think if if people are in a situation to take up that project, um, I think I think it would we'd we'd all be surprised to see how effective those kinds of local movements can really be in in building up a not only a, a base that's or an organization that's effective politically, but just a, a, a movement and a kind of structure to exert uh, influence and, and pressure on the Democratic Party uh, on the upper echelons of power. Absolutely. Um, okay, just checking in again with our, our main story today, though. This is another quote coming in. Uh, reportedly, major point of contention between the two is their $40 million Calabasas family home with the source explaining that Kardashian owns all the land and adjoining lots around the house while West owns the actual house. So we'll be following that story closely as well. Um, now I wanted to ask you, uh, I think I think yesterday was probably particularly troubling for uh, people of certain experience uh, to watch. I think anyone who's been to a protest and had uh, their head cracked open by a police baton um, could be right, quite rightfully traumatized by, by the the show they were seeing on screen, I think people of color, um, it would be impossible, I think, to look at it and not and not kind of have your mind rebel at the the differences in the response and and what we can all just logically imagine the the response would be if it was a group of uh, uh, Muslim protesters or uh, black protesters or really like almost any other leftist would have been treated, um, you know. To a pretty a pretty stiff resistance. I mean, I'm I'm getting a little fed up because even in the mainstream media, they're saying, oh, you know, we can see a stark double standard. I mean, if one if one particular group can do anything they fucking want, and another group, if they do anything at all, are met with uh, you know violence, is that can you even call that a double standard, or is it something else? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, 
that's why just uh, letting analysis rest at um, a narrow hypocrisy, uh, this is hypocritical, there's a double standard, is really not substantive enough. We're talking about a much more systemic hierarchical organization in society of power and privilege. And I think, um, I think uh, you had noted and, and license. Twitter. I mean, it's a, it's a license yeah. to do whatever you want. Whereas, you know, I, I just, I don't see how, I think the human mind is built as such that it, it takes in inputs and it compares variables that are similar. And, and unless you're completely unaware of um, your own racial bias, I, I just don't see how you couldn't be disgusted by, you know, basically these, these doofuses just being allowed to, you know, put their feet up on the furniture and, and, and breach the security of like supposedly the greatest nation, the, the most powerful nation to ever exist in the history of time. Yes. Well, um, I think that license point, uh, redirecting our language from privilege to license is probably helpful. Uh, you know, it's a license, as you're saying, to act and behave in, in ways um, with impunity with a sense of never needing to be accountable, um, of the space belonging to you, right? That sort of sense. Um, what they I were think yesterday also the... yesterday also showed us how open ended it can be too. I mean, it's, yeah. it it can constantly be expanded to to just increasingly ever absurd heights. It would seem. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, quite striking. Yes, quite striking. The uh, insane levels to which it seems like it could extend, and I think what it was saying symbolically there is is uh, you know the space belongs to us the state belongs to us its purpose is to serve our interests um so you know how do we get to that sort of sense of whiteness and what's uh you know what claims you know such whiteness can make um Obviously, the U.S. is a settler colonial society like Canada, like, you know, Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, to a lesser extent, perhaps uh, Latin America, South, South American uh, polities. Um, you know, there's something unique about that as a political formation and how it develops historically. And of course, there are differences among them. But I think if we're looking at North America and the U.S. in particular, um, you know, it is it, it is founded in um, it, it is founded in some sort of of white supremacy. I mean, there's just no way around that, and it has its consequences. And the nature of it as a republic or as a democracy, you know, is bounded um, is bounded in specific ways. Um, I work, you know, in a period that is far removed historically from modern uh, United States, uh, uh, Western hemispheric uh, history. But I do think that there are some intersections and questions of continuity that need to be thought through in how we understand our political culture, the place of whiteness in it, um, its sources and how it was formed and the relationship really between religion and race. You mentioned that, you know, if these had been Muslim protesters, there might have been a very different uh, response to them. And at the same time, if there were black protesters. And so we've got race and we also have religion and religious identity that can overlap um, in terms of being 
antithetical or outside or excluded from whatever the privileged norm of those who are really enfranchised in this in this system. And certainly now more than ever with with Islam in particular, I mean, it's basically treated as a racial category now. Yes, there's been the racing of this religion and religious category as foreign immigrant outsider um, almost ethnicized and racialized. Um, and I think there is, frankly, a very long history uh, to that. And that's part of the reason why it's been so effortless to readopt in some ways um, patterns of Islamophobia um, in society and culture, uh, just as, for example, was the case for a very long period of time. And, in, you know, in, in, into our present time, we, we're seeing the resurgence of it, of anti-Semitism. Um, as again, something that is uh, a religious category, but also was racialized. And because it's the religion of a particular people, um, that you have this intersection between something like a race or ethnicity or nation on the one hand, um, and religion on the other. Um, and in fact, actually, I see that there are a lot of parallels in many ways, um, or linkages, I wouldn't say parallels, but linkages between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, which may come as a bit of a surprise to people who are used to thinking of Jews and Muslims as somehow being very hostile categories that has so much more to do with the modern history of the state of Israel, Zionism, and so on. But if you look at a longer and deeper history, you see that non-Christian religions and cultures and non-Latin Western religions and cultures inhabited some kind of association with one another in the imagination of, of Latin Europe. Um, and so that these intersections go back a very long way to what we might think of as anti-Muslim uh, and anti-Jewish kinds of Christian doctrines, polemics, and warfare, as well as persecution in medieval Europe. And I really do see the medieval period as being an incubator or a crucible where some of these associations and patterns were, were forged um, between what you might think of as the Jew, as the internal religious or theological enemy of, of, of Christians, to the external political or military uh, enemy um, that was the Muslim. And of course, there's intersections between those because there were quite a lot of Muslims in Latin Christian society in places like Sicily and in Spain for many hundreds of years until, of course, the uh, expulsion, forced conversion and then expulsion of those who were uh, formerly Muslims and their descendants after their after their forcible conversion, they nonetheless still um, were expelled from Spain in 1609 to 1614, the so-called Moriscos. Um, but I think fundamentally there is this kind of uh, relationship between Jews and Muslims as non-Christians um, and as enemies that you know, an inhabited, slightly different, but, you know, connected roles in the, in the Christian imagination um, between, um, you know, religious persecution internally, right, um, and crusade as an external, you know, war uh, outside. So I like to think of the later medieval period as being something 
that you could call a crusading society um, as opposed to just simply a persecuting society. There was a famous historian, R.I. Moore, who wrote an interesting book uh, quite some time ago um, at this point, I think 1987, and was called The Formation of a Persecuting Society. And he argued that Europe during the Middle Ages became a persecuting society that applied similar structures of marginalization and persecution to um, groups like Jews, heretics, um, and subsequently lepers and uh, prostitutes and so on, and that it became a kind of constitutive part of the political structuring uh, vocabulary of European society to persecute. And um, the one thing that he seems to miss in his analysis is really what about Islam and Muslims and what about um, the huge number of crusades that were fought and uh, around which um, kings mobilized their people and the church raised in enormous amounts of money to fund. This was a an important reality, much like you might say, sort of like the Cold War or the global war on terrorism, this kind of external enemy that requires the mobilization of society. And, um, you know, in our case, giving up, we already talked a little bit about the security state post 9-11 that, you know, this threat, this danger uh, externally that has to be confronted on the world stage and the global war on terrorism means that we also have to give up all kinds of civil liberties and submit to uh, surveillance and security uh, uh, society. So it's something similar, I think, like that was starting to incubate that this sense of emergency, these failed wars to reconquer mm -hmm. Jerusalem, and these constant preaching of the crusade and mobilization about the Muslim enemy externally created and uh, pressure internally in some ways that you needed to purify and purge Christian society and reform it in order to be able to be victorious in this crusade and achieve this global Christianizing of the world. And so it meant that we had that they had to um, suppress, find and suppress heresy and also um, deal with this inimical threat of the internal religious other, uh, that of the Jews. So you start to see uh, anti-Semitic kinds of stories like the blood libel leading to pogroms and that there is some kind of interaction between the preaching of crusade and the um, massacring of Jews. The mm -hmm. biggest wide-scale massacres that happen uh, of Jews in Western Europe, in Latin Christendom, as we should, you know, perhaps call it, with the preaching of the First Crusade, with the Second Crusade, that there's this constant repeated cycle or pattern that crusade is connected with purging of these internal religious enemies to the extent that, you know, in the First Crusade, um, uh, some of the crusade leaders who end up massacring or being involved in um, uh, forced conversions, um, extortion, and massacre of Jews in the Rhineland say, well, look, we're going all the way to fight the enemies of Christ in the Holy Land, but here we have enemies of Christ who are involved in his persecution and crucifixion. We should deal with them first, right? So that's something that I think is interesting to ex excavate in the political imagination, the cultural imagination of how religious difference 
um, led to a kind of persecuting society, um, and that in some ways those roots of religious difference get reformulated over time um, into racial differences uh, at mm. other stages in, in, in history. Mm. And it's certainly, I mean, we need to be learning those lessons and learning that history again now. I mean, sadly, we're seeing a tremendous rise, obviously, um, over the last few decades of religious intolerance. And, you know, you can just look at the alt-right, the alt-right people that were storming the Capitol yesterday, who probably hate Jews and Muslims equally, and probably also don't really give a shit about the country per se, as much as they give give a shit about their own um, kind of tribe tribal group or whether it's a political base or whether they even realize the kind of white nationalist undertones of it. Um, yes. I, I think, I think, and now, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to get a little speculative here just in the interest of, you know, when, when you're partying late at night with your friends, sometimes you want to speculate a little bit, but um, I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting that we saw this happen um, immediately after this big uh, kind of debacle on the left between people advocating for force the vote and whatnot that got and continues to be really ugly, although I haven't seen anyone talking about it much lately. And I wonder, I mean, if I, I'm not saying that I believe, uh, you know, an outside actor like Russia was involved in some kind of fomenting of, of discord. But if if that is like, let's say for the for the purposes of discussion, it was, Russia did help to foment um, these kind of disagreements on both the left and 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 also encourage the kind of storming of the Capitol here on the right. I mean, would that not be like one of the most successful kind of cyber intelligence operations in recent memory, if that was the case? Well, um, it, you know, might have fairly spectacular results. Um, I'm thinking also about uh, a very funny onion, uh, you know, onion story I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was it was going around today on uh, some friend's Twitter that um, the headline was something like FBI uh, uncovers um, Al Qaeda plot to sit back and let America destroy itself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, perfect, uh, perfectly pitched for what we were seeing, you know, yesterday and last night. Um, so. You know, there, there, there's some leaving um, us to our own devices and the kind of factional. Um, oh yeah, certainly. I would never deny that that's, that's already yeah. endemic, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Like yeah, it doesn't need a lot to get to get going. Apparently, of outside interference to really sow, uh, uh, you know, discord and wreak havoc. But on the other hand, because. Um, you know, you have such dry tinder, you know, perhaps it doesn't take a lot of uh, external spark to light things, uh, you know, aflame. I mean, it's pure speculation, but... Um... Pure speculation. I mean, but yeah, I mean, it is it is noted that Russia and, you know, other actors, I mean, obviously the United States has been involved in all kinds of shenanigans, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there are certain, certain governments that are interested in, you know, de-evolution de of political entities and, and divisive politics. And, you know, we've seen it uh, pop up all over Europe as well. Um, it's really, it's really curious. Yes. Like I'm, it feels like we're living in the era of political discord and I can't, I can't think of anything that would, that's more emblematic of that than, than a bunch of buffoons being allowed to, you know, stomp on, on uh, the, on the U S Congress basically. Well, you're right that there, that there, um, are some intersections, I think, um, not only has right wing 
uh, far right, um, have far right movements um, become internationalist. You know, I mean, it's obvious that it's happening. It's a global um, phenomenon and there are intersections and interconnections sometimes between them. I mean, we tend to think of these as ultra nationalist, which would make them, you know, less uh, capable perhaps of forging um, cooperative or collaborative connections with other national groups. But, you know, let's remember the Axis powers, right? In the 40s, you had, you know, fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and, um, you know, militaristic uh, Imperial Japan. Um, so these things can be coordinated. And so there is an internationalism of this kind of moment of these um, you know, political forces operating and working, but even somebody like Steve Bannon had tried to resurrect, if we want to go back to what I was talking about, some kind of Christian civilizational coalition, you might say, yeah. that really looked at Russia as a potential leader and that also Putin has himself fancied uh, and characterized himself as sort of a global leader of conservatism that's based on Russian Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, an effort, an effort to, to kind of use that to supplant the previous kind of ideology of, uh, of socialism and communism, right? Exactly. And it's someone that can also be internationalist while still being centered in a Russian nationalism, because there are affiliations that can be forged while still you know, be, having these grounded or rooted in one's own kind of, um, you know, imperial history. So I think there is a way in which, um, you know, the buffoons, um, you know, wearing uh, animal skins and horns might seem like uh, just sort of bizarre uh, cl uh, clownishness. There, there are kind of a symbolic culture that's being developed that does connect them to a larger more global project in the sense that um, Norse mythology and Norse culture has been a kind of neo-pagan white nationalist orientation when it, you know, Absolutely, is not yeah. satisfied with. Uh, I mean, that, that was kind of a big part of the Viking revival or whatever it was yes, called back. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, you know, if that's one of the cultural touchstones or currents that could be tapped into, yeah, I hadn't thought about that because I was just I was just like focusing on his on his cheesy costume. But yeah, that's right, right. Yeah, if like one doesn't want just to have evangelical militant Christianity as your you know cultural base, this is uh, an alternative that's available in European kind of history and culture that uh, aggrandizes whiteness. And so then the paraphernalia and the regalia are communicating uh, and speaking to that kind of identification in just the same way that neo crusader imagery is so important. I mean, you had, um, you know, Anders Breivik, the, uh, you know, person who killed and slaughtered so many people in, in, in um, Norway, um, you know, saw himself as a new Templar, he wanted to revive the, um, you know, the the Templars and um, the uh, Crusader, slogan or battle cry, Deus Lovolt, God wills it, has been something that is a meme that you will see in far-right, alt-right sorts of circles. Um, even Brenton Tarrant, uh, the killer, Christchurch killer in New Zealand, um, visited all kinds of important uh, battle sites in what you might think of as the history of conflict between you know, Europe and uh, the Muslim world. Uh, so the, ba you know, Battle of Kosovo and 
the fourth, late 14th century, uh, the Battle of Lepanto in the, six, the, the 16th uh, century uh, naval victory um, and, and so on against the Ottoman Empire. So we find that um, the culture of the far right is appropriating certain motifs and themes of, uh, you know, themes of the kind of clash of civilizations and appropriating as an ideology and um, history as as a as a way of rooting and grounding their contemporary sense of themselves. And I think what's going on in some way is the desire I mentioned earlier. Um, the need for a sense of community and connection. And I think there's also a need for a sense of meaningfulness in history. I mean, what's better than, you know, out of your miserable existence, uh, you know, in late capitalist consumer society that is turning into, uh, you know, a hellscape of <laughs> neoliberalism, <laughs> the jobs have gone and all of that than to feel at least some sense of meaning and dignity that you are part of some grand historical struggle, you know, between, you know, you know, the West and, you know, these other other sorts of forces that you are a modern crusader and that you can contribute something to something greater than yourself. I think that's attractive to people who are made well, it's attractive to everybody because we're so atomized in our current uh, situation mm. and liberal capitalist consumer society offers you very, very little to feel like you have a meaningful life, especially if you don't have a lot of money. Um, and, and I think it's something similar, you might say, on some level to the attraction that jihadism has in the Islamic world, which is we, you know, accepting from the other side, the idea of the clash of civilizations and mm. feeling like we are part of some grand historical, meaningful kind of conflict that we can contribute to. And it leads people to these extreme, you know, positions because these young men are looking for some something that recovers value in their in their life and, so, and provides them with a sense of community and solidarity and historical significance and importance is that uh, is that the number one or one of the main um tools in our in our available to us when we when we try and work to fight uh fascistic forces that are rising i mean do we need to once this pandemic abates and save the vaccinations have taken off i mean are the are creating those bonds of community really one of our one of our underused tools i really feel so i mean i think uh you can see it everywhere that there is some sort of yearning for and this is why the manga was so you know make america great again this is why it was so seductive and attractive to people was a kind of world where you didn't just shop for everything as convenient as it may be you didn't just shop for everything online but you actually went down to the corner store and you had a conversation and you knew people in your community and you felt like you're part of the fabric of society um, people are really suffering i think on a psychological and emotional level a lack of fulfilling engagement with one another um, and if you think about it, you know, 
what was the bedrock of American democracy with all of its horrible limitations and the fact that it was a racial, demo, you know, it was a racial, racially exclusive one and, and so on, was if you think of, about the small New England town and direct democracy and people, you know, having to engage with their neighbors in collectively making decisions about the character and direction of their lives together. Like that is no longer possible and people are searching for other ways in which they can have connection, autonomy, um, integrity, and we're finding it in these strange online communities and 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 in other sorts of places because we're not going to, you know, be it's not going to be rooted in, for example, solidarity in your workplace after forty years of neoliberal war, class war, and um, you know suppression of unions, right? So. I do think you're right that maybe that is one of the tools, but it's a tool that needs to, because you can find community of all kinds, productive or destructive, um, is we need to find ways of engaging in community um, and solidarity towards mutually beneficial, enhancing and enlarging of that sense of community in the cause of justice and equality. I mean, that's really, going to be uh, the task going forward, I think. If, if anything's going to get us out of uh, the circumstances we're in or on the trajectory that seems so dangerous that we're heading along, it will have to be something that encompasses that. And I think it, it, it can go hand in hand with, um, you know, also the your a wider political project to, um, to build a, a, a movement or a political base, um, as well as, you know, it should go hand in hand with just living the fullest possible life. I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, you know, especially at a time like now where we should be appreciating things like being able to get together with people in your in your neighborhood, um, in real life. <laughs> you know, I, I imagine that's going to be that's going to have a quasi narcotic effect on everyone, I hope, and whether it's eight months or 12 months or a couple of years. Wow. Yes. I mean, can you imagine? Um, it's a fantasy now, like how great it would be to have a barbecue with your neighbors, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know you have to go on. Uh, you're going on Feldo, I think, in about a half hour here. So yeah. we can we can start to wind things down. Feel free to plug the show. I keep on trying to get a question in, but um, I think my hand got desiccated and skeletal. It was raised for so long. But I'll, uh, I'll look forward to seeing your comments on there as well. Everyone should tune in if they uh, if they didn't know to already. Um, tell everyone again where they can follow your uh, your work. I know you have some good stuff coming up on your podcast in the next bit. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Adnan A Hussein H U S A I N, and it would be really great if uh, people wanted to learn a little bit more about the Middle East, Islamic world, Muslims in the West. Uh, more contemporary issues. I have one podcast I co-host called The Majlis, M-A-J-L-I-S, which means the assembly. So an assembly of the learned for good conversation and discussion, we hope. What's, uh, so uh, what's, the, what's the, the website or the URL oh, to it's find Anchor. that? It can be a little, oh, it's Anchor. Yeah, okay. it's Anchor. Anchor. Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm slash T-H-E dash M-A-J-L-I-S, The Majlis. Good, good. And the other podcast that I'm involved with is uh, about history called Guerrilla History. And that's on Libsyn. It's guerrillahistory.libsyn.com. 
And um, that's a leftist take on history that might be valuable or useful for us um, to understand for our contemporary struggles. And I co-host that with Henry Hakamaki and uh, Brett O'Shea of Revolutionary Left Radio. So give that a listen. Awesome. Awesome. Um, anything else? Any any other uh, thoughts of hope or admonishments or warnings you want to give to the children before uh, before we let you go? <laughs> um well, we covered a lot of ground. I would just say the struggle is ahead. Uh, we need to, I think, just taking your um, sense that uh, we need to turn now towards figuring out how to how to improve the government that we have. I think we'll get over this brief period of chaotic street theater. There will be a new administration um, uh, on the horizon here, but um, it doesn't mean that we can sit back and rest and relax. Unfortunately, um, we have to fight just as hard um, for a better world um, under the Biden administration. So let's let's get busy and let's work together. And again, this has been a great forum. Uh, you cover all kinds of different things, um, but there's always a good conversation to be had on Night Rule. So thank you so much, oh, Isaac. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I always enjoy our conversations. So um, yeah, enjoy your night and uh, I'll look forward to following your work in the next little bit and I'll be in touch. We'll talk soon. Terrific.